The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. Today, uh, we meet once again, at least for me once again, to review the authorities for the use of military force, or AUMF. Matters of war and peace are among the most sobering topics with which the committee, this committee, and Congress are charged. I take this issue, and I think we all take this issue, and our committee's oversight of this issue very seriously. I know it's of great importance to all of us here. I'd like to thank Senators Young and Kane especially, and in particular for their persistence on this matter. This uh, issue is one of the most vexing issues that I've dealt with in my years in the United States Senate, and I've sat through scores of hours of testimony and opinions from lawyers and uh, wrestling with how we actually deal with this issue, uh, the pragmatics of this issue. It's important that we debate this issue and search for a path forward. There is broad agreement that Congress ought to pass a new AUMF. The problem is there are 535 ideas of what that should look like and even more views in the executive branch. I've been working on this issue for more than a decade and have found that the practical aspects and the legal aspects are incredibly difficult to reconcile. There are many different lawyers with many different opinions and no clear consensus on what Congress should do, although all of us have strong opinions on what Congress should do. One problem we have to address is that many of us have grown up thinking about war as military conflict between nation states. But over the last 20 years, we have learned that our enemies are not necessarily state actors. Today, we face rapidly evolving threats without boundaries. Acts or threats of aggression can occur with virtually no warning, often asymmetrically, requiring swift responses to keep our nation safe. We are, we are blessed with the greatest military force in the world, indeed the greatest military force the world has ever seen, and we do all we can to be prepared for acts of aggression. Our president needs to be able to respond as quickly as threats materialize. Whatever we do, we should not politicize the AUMF issue, and we should not support an AUMF with irresponsible restrictions on our commander-in-chief or on the commanders in the field. This is truly not a political problem. This is an issue in which all Americans are concerned. Whether we agree with it or not, the 2001 AUMF provides the basis for our most important counterterrorism activities abroad against Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and associated terrorist groups. Consecutive defense secretaries spanning both Democrat and Republican administrations have reiterated that our counterterrorism operations, those activities that keep Americans safe, rely on the 2001 AUMF. Many recent legislative proposals, however, include a repeal of the 2001 AUMF. Any efforts to repeal an AUMF must also include uh, efforts to pass a suitable replacement. That has proven difficult. As unfortunate as it is, the threat from terrorism persists. If there is a path forward on this issue, we cannot let it jeopardize the hard-fought gains we have made over nearly two decades. The safety of the American homeland uh, nor the laws that provide key detention authorities. Indeed, some of the most hardened terrorists are kept off the battlefield under this authority. Turning our attention to Iran, I'm increasingly concerned 
with Iran aggression. Iran's seizure of a British-flagged vessel in international waters is a clear violation of international norms. That said, maximum pressure is working. The Iranian economy will remain hobbled until the regime chooses to behave as a responsible member of the international community. Iran should take note. Despite all of the debate on legal authorities, one thing remains clear. Article 2 of the Constitution provides the Commander-in-Chief with authority to use force to defend the United States and its citizens against attacks. This includes our men and women serving in harm's way. We owe them and their families no less. I look forward to hearing from the two administration witnesses on this issue today and to the discussions with the members of this committee regarding this complex issue. And it deserves a robust discussion, with I know that, which I know this committee is up to. With that, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding a very important hearing, and I know the response to several of our colleagues, uh, Senator Kane, Senator Young, Senator Udall, Senator Merkley, just to mention some who have been pressing this issue for some time, so I appreciate the hearing. The Constitution of the United States gives to Congress the sole authority to declare war and therefore to authorize the use of military force. The vote we take to send America's sons and daughters in harm's way is one of our most grave responsibilities and one which we must fully embrace. And let's be clear, Congress has over the past decade not adequately exercised our prerogative, allowing presidents to abuse that authority for decades. Regardless of party, no president wants to be constrained. Recent past presidents of both parties have placed U.S. forces in combat without authorization or stretched a past authorization beyond all recognition. It is unconscionable, and I also believe it's unconstitutional. I take these votes very seriously. In response to a direct attack on the United States, I voted in favor of the 2001 AUMF against Al-Qaeda. After careful review and consideration, I have voted against others, including the Iraq War authorization in 2002. As chair of the Foreign Relations Committee in 2013, I worked arduously with all members of this committee to author an AUMF for Syria in response to the use of its chemical weapons, and again in 2014, to carefully authorize use of force against ISIS. While this committee took our responsibilities seriously, and even the mere threat of the possibility of the authorization of the use of force in the case of Syria had Assad give up the chemical weapons we knew of at that time without firing a shot. These authorizations never made it to the Senate floor. Each time I cast a vote, and I'm sure this is true of many of my colleagues and not all of them, I carefully examine all of the facts and weigh the risk of using force. I ask myself if the cause is just and in the national security of the United States. If it is, I would vote to send my son and daughter into war and also anyone else's. But if I felt it was not, I would not vote to send my son or daughter or anyone else's. Before we authorize force, we must consider three issues. First, is military action necessary to advance and protect the national security interests of the United States? Second, we need a clear diplomatic and political strategy and to understand how military action advances our interests, including realistic timeframes. And lastly, we need to understand what authorities the Commander-in-Chief has and what specifically they need from Congress in terms of resources and authorities. This is our decision to make, not the President's, not the Secretary of State's. 
The Founding Fathers did not trust the executive to make the decision to take the United States to war, and I don't see why we should override their wisdom. As I have said many times, I am not comfortable with this administration or the last administration's reliance on the 9-11 AUMF and the 2002 Iraq AUMF to pursue new enemies in different countries and under completely different circumstances than existed when those authorities were granted. Congress passed the 2001 AUMF to counter al-Qaeda in the wake of September 11 attacks. No member could have foreseen that we would still be acting under its authority 18 years later. I do not believe that it provides the authority to justify an endless war or to engage in new wars beyond anything the Congress could have ever imagined. To be clear, I do not doubt that actions to defend our country against attack are necessary or that our military forces must be able to defend themselves. But new, significant combat actions require new and appropriate authorizations before they are undertaken. I understand that this administration and the State Department believes the 2001 9-11 AUMF could be twisted anew to provide legal cover for any U.S. combat action against Iran based upon some fictive connection between Tehran and al-Qaeda. That's absurd. And I ask our witnesses today not to insult our intelligence by claiming that. My colleagues, we've seen the consequences before of an administration's fictions to justify war in Vietnam and in Iraq. The results have been quagmires that have gone on for years at the horrendous cost in the lives of U.S. soldiers and innocent civilians. In the worst of cases, our military action has not only failed to achieve its goal, but a lack of diplomatic and strategic planning has beget more and evolving challenges and threats to the United States and our citizens. In Iraq, arguably, we extended our tenure in a quagmire to ostensibly defeat ISIS. While the caliphate may be defeated, ISIS and its ideology is certainly not, with ISIS affiliates from Nigeria to Sri Lanka and even stirring again in Iraq. There are few remaining limits to a president's ability to wage war. That must change before we find ourselves in another war in the Middle East without Congress's approval and possibly with Iran. I look forward to the witness's testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Menendez. And, I, and your, your work five years ago uh, as we wrestled with this issue in regards to Syria certainly uh, deserves uh, to be recognized and to be commended. Also, Senator Udall, Senator Murphy, Senator Kane, and, and others. Uh, Senator Young has been particularly uh, uh, attentive to this issue also. Uh, I think the Syria issue probably underscored as much as any how really difficult uh, this issue is to, uh, to wrestle with. And uh, your, your efforts are, uh, are to be commended uh, in that regard. We'll, uh, we'll turn now to uh, uh, David Hale, the Honorable David Hale. Ambassador Hale serves as the United as the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. Ambassador Hale previously served as U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan, Lebanon, Jordan, and as a Special Envoy for Middle East Peace. So Ambassador Hale, we welcome you, and we'd love to hear your remarks. Well, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of the committee, I thank you for inviting me to testify today. The Trump administration's unprecedented pressure campaign on Iran has two objectives to deprive the Iranian regime of the money it needs to support its destabilizing activities, and second, to bring Iran to the negotiating table to conclude a comprehensive and enduring deal as outlined by Secretary Pompeo in May of 2018. 
President Trump and Secretary Pompeo have expressed clearly America's willingness to negotiate with Iran without preconditions when the time is right. We've also been clear about our readiness to begin normalizing relations should we reach a comprehensive deal. Last year, Secretary Pompeo laid out 12 points on what a negotiated deal should address. Iran's nuclear program, its ballistic missile development and proliferation, its support for terrorist groups and proxies, and its treatment, wrongfully, of US citizens who are detained. Before we reimposed sanctions and accelerated our pressure campaign, Iran was emboldened by the resources and legitimacy provided by our participation in JCPOA. It was increasing the scope of its malign activity, including expansive missile testing and proliferation, its involvement in regional conflicts, and it was unjustly detaining American citizens. In Yemen, Iran has funded, armed, and trained the Houthis, only prolonging the conflict and suffering of the Yemeni people. In Syria, Iran supports a regime that has killed hundreds of thousands of its own citizens, displaced millions, and which continues to spread violence throughout the country. And in Lebanon, Iran uses Hezbollah to provoke conflict with Lebanon's neighbors, imperil the Lebanese people, and generate instability. American pressure is aimed at reversing these trends. Today, the regime and its proxies are weaker than when our pressure began. Shia militant groups in Syria have stated that Iran no longer has enough money to pay them as they did in the past, and Hezbollah has enacted unprecedented austerity plans because of this lack of funding. We're making it harder for Iran to expand its own military capabilities. Military spending fell by nearly 10% in the first year of our pressure campaign, and Iran's 2019 budget proposed even steeper cuts, including a 28% cut in defense spending. Our policy at its core is an economic and diplomatic one. We're focusing on maximizing economic pressure, linking that pressure to malign activities, and simultaneously increasing Iran's diplomatic isolation. And recently, Iran has responded to this campaign with violence. Iran attacked vessels near the UAE port of Hujera in May and assaulted two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman last month. Iran shot down an American unmanned aircraft lawfully operating in international airspace. As the Secretary said, Iran should meet diplomacy with diplomacy, not with terror, bloodshed, and extortion. The President has been clear that this administration does not seek armed conflict with Iran, but we will defend our citizens, forces, and interests, including against attacks by, attacks by Iran or its proxies. The administration is not currently seeking a new authorization for use of military force, nor has the administration to date interpreted either the 2001 or the 2002 AUMF as authorizing military force against Iran, except as may be necessary to defend U.S. or partner forces engaged in counterterrorism operations or operations to establish a stable democratic Iraq. The department's acting legal advisor, Mr. String, is here today to address AUMF issues from a legal standpoint. We stand with our partners and allies to safeguard global commerce, regional stability, and freedom of navigation in, through, and around the Strait of Hormuz. One-fifth of the world's oil supply transits through the Strait. At the direction of President Trump, we are working to establish an international initiative to promote freedom of navigation and the free flow of commerce in the Gulf. It's vital that we and other nations preserve the right of all vessels to safely navigate there. Iran's recent announcement that it's accelerating its uranium enrichment reminds us of the fatal flaws of the JCPOA deal. It left Iran's nuclear capabilities largely intact and placed Iran in a position to pursue rapid breakout at a time of its own choosing. Mr. Chairman, the terms of the JCPOA were time-bound by unacceptable sunset provisions. Therefore, the world would have faced soon enough the problems presented by Iran's provocative building up of its nuclear capabilities. Learning from past mistakes, we will demand a full accounting of Iran's past and present nuclear activities, as well as comprehensive and permanent restrictions on them, and we will continue to deny Iran access to the revenue streams it's used to destabilize the Middle East. 
As we raise the cost of Iran's expansionism and of the status quo, we seek a comprehensive deal and a far more peaceful and stable relationship. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and other members of this committee, I thank you again for the opportunity to testify before you, and I welcome the opportunity to answer your questions. Thank you, Ambassador Hill. We'll now turn to uh, Mr. Merrick String. Mr. String currently serves as the Acting Legal Advisor at the State Department and has previously served in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs. Uh, Mr. String, the floor is yours. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify today. It's a particular privilege to be before you today, before the committee, where I started my career working for then Chairman Luger. I am here today to address the administration's view of the scope of the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs as they relate to Iran, as well as more general questions about the President's current authorities to use force and the administration's position on a new AUMF. The administration is not seeking a new AUMF against Iran or any other nation or non-state actor at this time. In addition, the administration has not to date interpreted either the 2001 or the 2002 AUMF as authorizing military force against Iran, except as may be necessary to defend U.S. or partner forces as they pursue missions authorized under either AUMF. The latter nuance is simply a reassertion of a long-standing right of self-defense for our military forces and those allies and partners deployed alongside of them. Simply put, where U.S. forces are engaged in operations with partner forces anywhere in the world pursuant to either the 2001 or 2002 AUMF, if those forces either come under attack or are faced with an imminent armed attack, U.S. forces are authorized to use appropriate force to respond where it is necessary and appropriate to defend themselves. This principle <laughs> is not new and it is not specific to Iran or to any other particular country or non-state group. The 2001 and 2002 AUMFs remain the cornerstone of ongoing military operations in multiple theaters and are a demonstration of U.S. strength and resolve. The 2001 AUMF provides the president authority to use military force against Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces, including against ISIS. That authority includes the authority to detain enemy personnel captured during the course of the ongoing armed conflict. But it is important to note that the 2001 AUMF is not a blank slate. It does not authorize the president to use force against every group that commits terrorist acts or could have links to terrorist groups or facilitators. As of today, the executive branch has determined that only certain terrorist groups fall within the scope of the 2001 AUMF, none of which are currently state actors. These groups are Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, certain other terrorist or insurgent groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda in the lands of the Islamic Maghreb, Al-Qaeda in Syria, and ISIS. The 2002 AUMF remains an important source of additional authority for military operations against ISIS in Iraq and to defend the national security of the United States against threats emanating from Iraq. The United States also relies on the 2002 AUMF as an additional source of authority to detain, including in recent litigation. As you know, Section 1264B of the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act states that not later than 30 days 
after the date on which a change is made to the legal and policy frameworks for the United States' use of military force, the President is to notify the appropriate congressional committees of the change, including its legal, factual, and policy justifications. As such, there is a mechanism to report to Congress if any changes to our legal assessments may occur in the future, which has been used by this administration on more than one occasion. More generally, the administration has kept Congress informed about overseas operations on a regular basis, consistent with the War Powers Resolution. Beyond the AUMFs, Article II of the Constitution empowers the President, as Commander-in-Chief and Chief Executive, to order certain military action in order to protect the nation from an attack or imminent threat of attack and to protect important national security interests. The legal and historical foundation of this constitutional authority to protect the national security interests of the United States is extensive, as you know. The Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel has issued a series of opinions under both Republican and Democratic administrations about the President's use of Article II authority over more than two centuries. Prior administrations have consistently relied on the President's constitutional authority to direct military force without specific prior authorization, including 2011 military operations in Libya. More recently, OLC explained its view concerning the April 2018 use of force against chemical weapons targets in Syria. Finally, besides not seeking any new AUMF at this time, the administration is also not seeking any revisions to the existing AUMFs. We have sufficient statutory and constitutional authorities to protect the national security interests of the United States. If Congress were to consider a new or revised AUMF, the administration affirms the same three criteria stated previously to the committee. First, that any new AUMF must have no sunset provision. Second, no geographic limitation. And third, no repeal before replacement. We believe that any repeal of the 2001 or 2002 AUMF before a new AUMF is in place would cast doubt on the U.S. government's continued authority to use force against the terrorist groups subject to those authorizations, including the scope of the U.S. government's detention authorities. It is also essential that any new legislation not undermine the President's constitutional authority to defend the nation against threats or attacks. Finally, anything casting doubt on our ability to respond in self-defense to Iranian threats or attacks on U.S. or partner forces or interests increases the risk and emboldens Iran to make further provocations. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and other members of this committee, I thank you again for the opportunity to testify and look forward to taking your questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. String. We're going to do a round of questions now, and we will start with Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. Uh, Secretary Hale, I know that you focused your entire testimony on Iran, and while Iran maybe creates a focal point for our attention on AUMF, this hearing is in, in a broader context about authorities under AUMF. Uh, so let me start with you, uh, Mr. String. Do you believe that the administration has any legal authorization to use military force against Iran beyond self-defense of U.S. armed forces and personnel in the region? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, as, as I stated in my opening statement, uh, with respect to the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs, the administration has not determined to date that either one of those statutory authorizations would, would apply or authorize force against Let me stop Iran. you there. Has not determined to date. To date is the very operative word in that sentence. And that's the same 
a statement that was made to Chairman Engel in the House in a letter from uh, Ms. Taylor, the Assistant Secretary for Alleged Affairs. The administration has not to date interpreted either AUMF as authorizing military force against Iran. So that's not my question. My question is, does the administration have any legal authorization to use military force against Iran beyond self-defense of U.S. armed forces and personnel in the region? Thank you, Senator, uh, for pointing out the, 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 the nuance in the letter. And it's an important nuance because what we can comment on is, is the facts that are presented to us as, as attorneys in the executive branch. And we've, uh, the assertion that you referenced is based on the facts that we know today, that to date we have not made any, any such determination. Um, I would also note that the Office of Legal Counsel has uh, extensively analyzed the scenarios under which uh, the president could exercise uh, use of force generally um, with respect to any national security threat. There are, that's not an unlimited or unbounded authority. Uh, the Office of Legal Counsel has laid forth uh, two important... You don't believe, as the president said, uh, I think a day or two ago in a speech, that uh, Article 2 allows the president to do anything he wants. The Office of Legal Counsel has uh, issued numerous opinions laying out the parameters, Senator, of, of any... Well, that's a simple yes or no. Does Article 2 of the Constitution of the United States say the president can do anything he wants? Uh, the Office of Legal Counsel has laid forth particular uh, criteria that must, that must be followed in any assessment of any use of force pursuant to the but Constitution. There is, if the president tomorrow, without any further provocation, wants to uh, have military action against Iran, does he have any authorization as of this point in time to do so? Again, Senator, I just refer back to the, the, the legal opinions that have been issued to date under this administration and previous administrations about the criteria that lawyers would look at uh, in order to determine whether a use of force under the Constitution is justified. Let me ask uh, Secretary Hale, will the administration commit to seeking congressional authorization for any military action against Iran other than a self-defensive one? Uh, I can certainly assure you, Senator, that we will uh, act in accordance with the law and seek consultations with the Congress. That's not a commitment to, uh, to seek an AUMF. Mr. String, do you think it's necessary for Congress to pass a new AUMF in order for the administration to enter into military conflict with Iran? Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. So uh, again, I'll assert, I'll assert what I said before about the the, the authority, long-standing authority that both Republican and Demo Democratic administrations have determined to exist under the Constitution to protect the United States and our national security interests. It's a it's a necessarily flexible authority. However, we are committed to keeping the committee, the Congress, informed, fully informed about how we think about these issues. We've submitted uh, a few months ago the so-called 1264 report, which talks about how we think about issues surrounding the use of force. We've, we submit- this, uh, this administration generally is not very uh, cooperative in giving members of this committee information, so I'm not too uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, warmed by that suggestion. Can you explain the need for to-date caveat in the letter sent by Chairman Engel? What, what, uh, what, did you ex what would you expect the department's interpretation uh, would change from to date to tomorrow? What would change? Thank you, Senator. Again, as, as, as an attorney in the executive branch, we can only comment on the facts before us. 
Uh, it's a tumultuous re uh, region and it would be difficult to speculate on what facts may arise in the future and we would be asked by clients in the executive branch as to uh, what might change, if anything. Well, let me just say, I, I, I'm not asking you to be hypothetical, but the AUMF is an 18-year-old law that was passed without any thought regarding Iran. What would lead to a change in interpretation so that it could apply to Iran when the plain language, legislative intent, and 18 years of interpretive history remain the same? Thank you, Senator. I, I appreciate the question, and again, I just have to go back to the the, the same the same I, statement I that I've made. I appreciate a real answer. Well, we can't comment on on hypothetical factual scenarios. It's not a hypothetical. I've just told you the facts. That's not a hypothetical. It, it's not a hypothetical at all. It was very clear. Iran wasn't even in the focal point 18 years ago. Now, Iran is not mentioned in the AUMF. There's nothing that has happened. Uh, that that original AUMF authorized. I, I, this caveat that to date creates a great deal of anxiety that you are all going to use this, uh, interpret this authorization, which is beyond the pale, to enter into a military engagement with Iran other than in response to a, a action that protects our personnel and our military. And I have to tell you, there is no appetite here to accept such an interpretation. And at the end of the day, we're not going to get dragged into a war when we have authorities over monies. So I, I, we need a, a clearer response, because I'm not asking you for a hypothetical. I'm asking you based on the facts that exist. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Carton. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our witnesses. Uh, Mr. Drang, I. I just want to go back to the 01 authorization, the current ambiguity in regards to authorizations concerning Iran, and what is the proper position for the United States to be in globally on the use of military force. I would think any administration would be in a much stronger position if there's unity between Congress and the executive branch on our resolve to, for our policies and what is, what is backed up with the authorization for the use of military force. And I hope you appreciate what has been said here about the 2001 authorization. It's personal to some of us because we voted for it. And there was, at the time that we voted on that authorization, such a need for unity in this country to show resolve against the attack on our country on 9-11. And we wanted to make it clear that the president had complete authority to respond to the horrific attack on our country. I remember that debate very well. I participated in that debate. And it was clearly aimed at those that planned the attack against us and those who harbored those who planned the attack against us. And the interpretation now of three administrations to apply that 01 authorization to contemporary issues is totally absurd. Absurd. It's not what Congress intended. Now, we've had administrations who have at least come forward and said, let's update that authorization. Let's debate what the authorization should be for the use of force against the current threat against this country. I am 
disappointed if I understand your position. You're not coming to Congress for an authorization for force in regards to the current terrorist threat against this country. I find that extremely disappointing because you don't have the unity in Congress that a debate like that would lead to. And now, yes, the, the most recent challenge is what's happening in Iran. And Senator Menendez is absolutely right. There is no appetite here. We believe, uh, for use of force, we believe that would be counterproductive to America's national security interests. And your letter says, basically, at this time, we don't intend to use the 01 authorization, but we reserve all rights. And that leads to nervousness on the Article I branch of government to how we can express ourselves, where it would be much stronger if we could express ourselves in unity with an administration as to the resolve of this nation to fight those who want to harm us. So I'm just expressing my frustration because I'm afraid I'm going to wake up one day and see American men and women in harm's way ordered by the President of the United States under the statement that has been authorized by Congress, which I don't believe we have authorized, which is going to cause division in this country, not strength. And while we still have time to act, why aren't you presenting to us an authorization that represents the current circumstances of this country and not what we experienced in 2001? Thank you, Senator, for, for the questions. I can answer that in a couple different ways. Uh, first, as to your first uh, principle as to whether it, the United States is stronger when the, the executive branch and Congress act in concert, I fully agree with that. Uh, with that proposition, I think everyone in the executive branch uh, would agree that we are stronger as a nation when we are um, aligned. Um, what, what I've said in my testimony uh, today is that we are not seeking a new AUMF because we believe at this time that we have sufficient legal authorities to protect the United States against threats around the world. That being said, uh, we also respect the institutional prerogative of this committee, of this institution, to consider a new AUMF. And what we've tried to do is lay down some guideposts for what we think some of those key criteria would be in a new, a new AUMF. And that's, uh, as I mentioned in my opening. I would just submit to you the chances of us passing an AUMF that is contemporary to needs without the active request from the administration is rather remote. I, I, take, I take your point. Um, at, the, at the same time, we, we are willing to provide feedback on any, any proposal. And what you might get from Congress is restrictions that we can get into statute that you don't want, that you'll have an option either to accept or, or veto a, a major bill because it's in there. I don't think that's the right way to proceed. Okay. Thank you. I, I respect the, that point. Uh, I'll just note also with respect to the 2001 AUMF, it, it is also not an unbounded uh, legal authority. It, there is a very careful interagency process, which the previous administration actually laid out in a 2016 report to Congress that describes how the executive branch would consider adding a new group to be a potential target under the 2001 You're AUMF. reinforcing my objections. 
the next administration may add a different standard to it, and, and this was never anticipated when this authorization was given by Congress. I, pr I really do appreciate your efforts and uh, understand the, the deep frustration that's in this body. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman Risch, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for holding this hearing, and I want to thank Undersecretary Hale and um, Mr. String, Acting Legal Advisor, uh, for your time today. Um, as we've covered so far, uh, 18 years ago, this body came together in the aftermath of 9-11 to pass a resolution authorizing the president to use force against those responsible for that heinous and cowardly attack, and that passed by overwhelming margins. But neither most of my colleagues nor the American people ever imagined that that 2001 vote would be used to justify uh, U.S. force uh, in places like Yemen or Libya or Somalia as it is today. In fact, my review um, concludes that only 18 senators who voted in favor of that resolution as senators in 01 are still in office, and not one of the currently serving Foreign Relations Committee members voted for it as senators, although a few did as House members. Um, so that means the overwhelming majority of us here today, more than 80% of the currently serving senators, have not voted either in favor or against uh, the way our government is using military force today against international terrorist groups. Um, of course, I believe that we should continue to fight uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, but I think we need to update the authority we're using to make sure it's relevant to today's fight, to make sure it engages and sustains uh, not just the consent but support of the American people. I believed this when President Obama was in office and advocated for it, and I continue to believe it today. The Constitution divides war-making uh, power and responsibility between Congress and the President for good reason. And since 2001, I believe far too much power has gone to presidents of both parties. And Congress uh, needs to do more to ensure that the executive branch seeks and gets permission of the people's branch before extending the authority to wage war to new geographies or new associated forces. Uh, I think uh, we as elected leaders and policymakers owe it to the men and women who fight overseas uh, on our behalf to debate the use of force. So let me briefly say a word about Iran. Um, I do not believe either the 01 or 02 AUMFs authorized war with Iran, and I do not think uh, that Iran can be linked to al-Qaeda, ISIS, or other associated forces um, detailed in those AUMFs, and I think the president, if he's contemplating using military force against Iran, must come to Congress to seek authorization. And I want to commend my colleague from New Mexico, Senator Udall, for leading an effort um, for us to have a vote on this issue and to continue to advance this issue. And I think given recent tensions with Iran, um, this committee should have an open, unclassified hearing on Iran with Secretary Pompeo or, or Brian Hook. Uh, I am concerned that after the President's unilateral withdrawal from the JCPOA, Iran's bad behavior has increased dramatically and our ability to rally our allies in the face of this provocation has decreased. So I welcome this conversation uh, and think it's important we continue to have a say, not on how we used force 18 years ago, but how we're using it today and in the future. So. Um, Ambassador Hale, if I might, the, Post, the Washington Post reported this week a 1,000 ISIS, ISIS fighters have crossed into Iraq, uh, and there are reports that they've captured territory in Afghanistan as well. What are we doing to ensure that ISIS uh, doesn't retake territory in Iraq and Syria or simply shift its operations into new areas? Uh, and what's our strategy to end these conflicts? The caliphate as a geographic area may have ended, but I don't think the fight against ISIS is over. Well, Senator, thank you for your comments and for your question. Um, I certainly agree with you that the fight is not over. Uh, we are unfortunately going to have to continue uh, to do everything we can to, uh, to wrap this up. 
Um, we have to continue the military pressure on ISIS fighters, uh, but they have a remarkable ability to reconstitute themselves in stateless areas, which is what you've just referred to. I don't have specific facts to confirm the Washington Post story, but this is the kind of phenomena that we have seen before from ISIS, and our strategy is not just military pressure, but I'll think more significantly to build up the capacity of our partner nations in the region, uh, the leadership of Iraq, uh, the leadership of Afghanistan, so that they are capable of dealing with this problem and to eliminate the stateless areas that are unfortunately the breeding ground for this phenomenon. One of my concerns is that we not lose focus uh, in the ongoing fight against ISIS as the administration and many of us shift focus to Iranian actions in the Gulf as we lost focus on Afghanistan when we went to war uh, in Iraq. Mr. String, if all the forces we're currently fighting around the world are covered by the O-1 AUMF, why do we need the O-2 AUMF at all? If the O-2 AUMF were repealed, is there something we're currently doing around the world that would have to stop? Thank you, Senator. I had a good discussion with your, your staff about this question as well um, the other day. Uh, I cannot point to a discrete set of operations that would be exclusively authorized right now under the, the 2000, only the 2002 AUMF, but this is how we think about it. Um, in 2011, the situation in Iraq was very different than it was today. We thought in 2011 the need for a, an AUMF with respect to Iraq was, was abating. Uh, the situation changed very quickly in, in uh, Iraq, and the previous administration made a decision that the 2002 AUMF uh, may have become more relevant again. So there's uh, an ongoing relevance for both our operations in Syria as a supplemental source of a supplemental authority for Syria and Iraq. Secondly, we continue to rely on the 2002 AUMF for certain detention activities. We've cited this uh, provision in recent litigation, and so we, we do continue to rely on it in, in the courts and in the, in the third branch. Of I, I do think we should be um, capable enough and strong enough to provide continuing authorities uh, for appropriate detention activities and authorization for ongoing conflict without relying on, I think, now badly outdated authorities. Uh, let me just, in closing, reference a letter that uh, I led with four colleagues about the condition of hundreds of American citizens, including 230 children um, stranded in Malaysia um, with their Yemeni uh, families waiting to obtain visas to the United States. The um, travel ban, the so-called Muslim ban, uh, does not have the sort of functioning exemption process that had been uh, proffered in court, and I have not yet gotten a response uh, to a letter about these cases of hundreds of stranded citizens. Will I get a response from the administration to this letter of last month? Thank you, Senator. Um, I have not seen the letter, but I will, I will look into it and ensure that we can get you all the information you need in response to that. Happy to make sure you have a copy today. Um, I just want to join uh, my colleague from New Jersey in his concerns about the phrase, we have not interpreted to date either AUMF. I think as a policy matter, not as a matter of lawyering carefully, the administration has to consult and get the approval of uh, Congress before beginning any conflict with Iran. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Coons. Uh, we will now turn to Senator Udall. Hey, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank uh, both uh, Senators Risch and, and uh, Menendez for pursuing this hearing. Under Secretary Hale and Acting Legal Advisor String, you are here before us because Congress, with the power to declare war, holds one of the most important responsibilities of any branch of government. There have been legitimate questions surrounding this administration's Iran policy and whether proponents of war with Iran would attempt 
to usurp our constitutional authority. That's why I introduced the Prevention of Unconstitutional War with Iran Act with Senator Paul and others, and why I worked with Senators Kane, Merkley, and Murphy and others to force a vote on a related bipartisan amendment on the floor. A bipartisan majority of members in both the Senate and the House voted to include this amendment in the NDAA. Finally, I hope that the conference report includes this prohibition. The 9-11 Commission report concluded, and I quote here, we have found no evidence that Iran or Hezbollah was aware of the planning for what later became the 9-11 attack, end quote. Do both witnesses acknowledge this conclusion from the 9-11 report? Yes, Senator. Yes, Mr. Hayes. Yes, sir, I do. Thank you. In testimony before this committee in 2017, uh, John Bellinger III, the State Department legal advisor under Secretary Rice, stated that he was involved with the drafting of the 2001 9-11 AUMF. He testified that the 2001 AUNF was very broad in the way that it was written to authorize all necessary force, but he also underscored that the language he helped draft had, quote, one important limitation. It authorizes force only against nations, organizations, and persons who planned, authorized, committed, or aided the 9-11 attacks, end quote. Mr. String, do you agree as, as uh, former legal advisor Billinger uh, concluded that in order to use force, the 2001 AUMF requires, quote, a nexus to the 9-11 terrorist attacks? Thank you, Senator, for that question. So the way that we interpret the 2001 AUMF. It's a pretty simple yes or no on that, I think. Yeah, and I, I can, and I will. If you start with a yes or no and then give your. If I can elaborate just how we, how we think about the, the scope of the 2001 AUMF, uh, there are two prongs to consider whether a particular entity or group could become a target under the uh, the 2001 AUMF. The first prong is whether it is a, whether an entity is de facto part of Al Qaeda. Uh, so that's that's prong one. The prong two is we look at whether uh, a particular entity could be could constitute a co belligerent with Al Qaeda or the Taliban against the United States. So I think broadly speaking, how we're continuing to interpret the AUMF is consistent with what Mr. Bellinger said, but I want to get a little, a little bit more granularity about how specifically we think about uh, the 2001 AUMF today. The, the um, War Powers Act has been interpreted to allow the Commander-in-Chief to retain numerous powers historically associated with the executive branch. These powers include the ability of the President to rescue hostages, defend our armed forces, and repel an imminent attack against the United States' territories or, its, or possessions or its armed forces. Do you agree with this interpretation, Mr. String? That was a, uh, Senator, that was a quote from the War Powers Resolution? It's, it's, it, it's, it's a summary of what the War Powers Act, which is law, what, what it does. That, I don't have that act in front of me, so that sounds like a, a a correct summary of what's in, in that uh, piece of legislation. And it was reported that the United States recently brought down an Iranian drone losing, 
using electronic countermeasures after its approach brought it to, too close to the USS Boxer. Prior to that, Iran shot down an American unmanned aerial vehicle. Mr. String, in your legal opinion, do these actions constitute hostilities as set forth in the War Powers Act? Uh, I can't get into uh, that type of determination right right now, um, but I, I will say that in particular with respect to the, uh, the drone that closed within a threatening range of the USS Boxer, uh, the United States um, acted to ensure the safety of the ship and the crew, uh, but uh, w we have not made any, any determination uh, that I can talk about about the, uh, the hostilities uh, issue at this point. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, for members, uh, a series of three votes has started. There's about seven minutes left on the first vote, and so we're going to have to uh, deal with that, but we will. And Senator Romney, you're up for questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, clearly, there's a great deal of concern on the part of uh, all the members of this committee uh, about the, um, the line that exists between the constitutional authority that the president has to uh, defend our troops, defend our citizens, defend our country, uh, to respond to attacks, uh, to uh, deter uh, future attacks, and the like. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the declaration of war, a decision to engage in, in, uh, uh, in, in war conduct um, somewhere in the globe. And we've had a difficult time as a, as a body defining where one uh, authority begins and the other ends, or the other begins. And um, I, I don't know whether you have a, uh, a description for us that'll be better than the current legislation that exists, but, but uh, with, with that as an introduction, I, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on a couple of things. First of all, there, there have been some rhetoric, and I don't think it's, it's advanced by uh, any of the members of this committee, uh, that, um, uh, that implies that the President of the United States couldn't respond to an attack on U.S. forces or U.S. citizens without first getting a vote for Congress. I, I believe, Mr. String, you would concur that that when there's an attack on our citizens, our, our properties, um, our, our armed forces, that there is uh, authority for the president to respond immediately. Yes, Senator, I agree. That is a flexible authority granted by the Constitution. Um, I guess the, the, the next question would be uh, one which is a little different than that, which is not just defending uh, our, our troops or our citizens uh, in an attack, but uh, if, for instance, a, a drone or a uh, heaven forbid, a, an aircraft were shot down by a foreign adversary. Um, the question is, would the president, after due deliberation and consideration with, uh, uh, with his advisors, have the capacity to respond in like manner or in a similar manner uh, to, uh, uh, even though uh, two or three days might have passed, would he be able to respond, uh, perhaps shooting down an aircraft of, their, of theirs or shooting down um, or taking some other kind of uh, hostile act? Uh, to show that, uh, that that was unacceptable on the part of the United States, or would he require the approval of the United States Congress before he was able to respond in the event that a, for instance, a drone or a, um, uh, an aircraft were shot down? Uh, thank you, Senator. So uh, without getting into any partic particular factual scenario, um, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice has identified a number of important U.S. interests which the President could protect using his Article II constitutional authority. These refer to 
um, important interests such as protecting U.S. persons, supporting allies, advancing regional stability. So in general, uh, the president has some authority to, to engage in limited types of military action in a, in, a, in a manner short of war in a constitutional sense. So that's an important um, bounding factor for the constitutional authority. Uh, can, can you be more definitive than, than that uh, distinction, which is limited military response uh, as opposed to engaging in war? Can, uh, do you have a sense of, of where, where limited military response ends and war begins? Thank you, Senator. It's, it's a good question. Uh, there are, how the executive branch looks at these questions, it, it's really a facts and circumstances analysis. Some of the factors that we would look at are the nature the scope and the duration of any military action, whether military action would last a matter of hours or a matter of days. So if, if as the risk of a longer prolonged conflict increases, uh, it, I think it would obviously get closer to uh, the, uh, the concept of war in a constitutional sense. Thank you. Um, we've also had some uh, discussion uh, recently, particularly with regards to uh, 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 arms for Saudi uh, for the Saudis uh, in the uh, the conflict going on in Yemen, uh, with regards to the definition of, of hostilities, and, uh, and and whether uh, we were engaged in hostilities as a nation by virtue of of furnishing uh, weaponry to the Saudis, uh, whether we might be engaged in hostilities by providing intelligence or uh, uh, providing um, uh, aircraft refueling and and the like. Uh, it, it, can you shed some light on, on uh, the administration's view on, on what does constitute uh, hostilities um, and what does not? Thank you, Senator. Another, another very good question. Uh, so the precise analysis under, uh, as to hostilities, um, I think we should discuss um, in, a, in a different setting. But the one critical factor that we've talked about with Congress in previous communications is whether there has been an, an exchange of fire between U.S. and hostile forces. So that, that is one factor. There are other factors which we need to be in a different setting to discuss. But with respect to support to uh, some Gulf partners, uh, the administration's view, as, as I think you know, is that the types of logistics and defense services, defense articles that the executive branch across administrations has been providing falls well short of hostilities uh, as that uh, term is used in the War Powers Resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Romney. Uh, Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ambassador Hale, thank you very much for being here and for all your incredible work would, in and around. Would my colleague yield for just a Certainly. second? Uh, in terms of process, Mr. Chairman, the, the vote is now, the first vote is now expired, uh, and I know there are other members that uh, uh, definitely want to ask questions in this regard. Is it the chairman's intention to recess subject to the call of the chair? Is it the chairman's intention to continue rolling through this? I just want to make sure I tell colleagues when they ask me what we're doing, what we're doing. My, my intention was to keep going, but uh, given the limited number here, it probably would make sense to recess uh, briefly and, uh, and reconvene here as quickly as we can get back. With that. Why don't we do that now? Then? With all parties? Yeah. It seems to be. So with that, the uh, committee will be at ease subject to the call of the chair.
I forgot what I was going to ask. All right, okay. but. Well, moving right along. Then. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you very much, and thank you for sticking uh, around uh, with us. Um, uh, Ambassador Hale, uh, I, I was uh, in the middle of, of asking you a, a question about um, uh, your perception of legal authority for hostilities. Uh, some of us are concerned about the way in which the president construes his inherent Article II authority. Uh, and so I, I wanted to just confirm that there are really two legal justifications for a military strike against a country like Iran. Um, the first would be that we are responding to an attack or we are attempting to prevent an imminent attack. That would be, as Mr. String has articulated within the president's Article II authority. The second would be that the administration comes to the conclusion that there is an existing congressional authorization that would cover such action, or the Congress passes a new authorization. Um, but just, I just want to make sure that I'm right in general, that the two ways you could strike Iran is if you are um, responding to attack or defending against an imminent attack, or you have an authorization from Congress. Um, well, thank you, Senator. Those do seem to be fairly specific legal questions. Would you mind if the legal advisor, acting legal advisor, responded? I don't, as long as he, <laughs> as long as we get an answer. Sure. I was maybe hopeful you might give a little bit <laughs> clearer answer than we've gotten from Mr. String, but I'll get, put it to Mr. String. Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, so under under U.S. law, I think your question is under U.S. law rather than international law. Under U.S. law. Um, there would need to be a, a, an AUMF, an authorization for the use of, of force uh, by Congress. And as we've stated, um, there's been no determination to date that either AUMF apply, would apply to Iran. And then secondly, you talked about the constitutional authority. Um, in previous OLC opinions across administrations, the authority has been described to be a, a, a little more flexible than, than what you stated. So. There, are, there needs to be a, a precise national interest that's been articulated uh, by a president in order to justify the use of force under the Constitution. Some of those types of national interests that have been identified in the past are uh, protection of U.S. persons or property, uh, support of allies, uh, support of U.N. Security Council resolutions, promoting regional stability, uh, and deterrence of the use of WMD. So it's, it's a, a little more flexible than you described, Senator, but it's broadly in line. Yeah, I, I think the issue that you will find with many of us is that that list would seem to describe almost uh, any reason uh, to use broad Article II authority to engage uh, in hostilities. And so I think there will be a difference between our interpretation of that Article II authority and your Article II authority. Um, Mr. Hale, I wanted to uh, follow up on your opening statement. Um, regarding the present situation with I Iran. Um, there's been a great deal of confusion as to what the administration's position is with respect to negotiations with the Iranians. Uh, say what you will about President Obama. He was pretty clear that he wanted a negotiation on their nuclear uh, weapons program uh, and, and setting aside their other malevolent activity for future negotiations. Um, the Iranians have telegraphed a potential interest, uh, perhaps on terms that are acceptable to us, but an interest nonetheless uh, to enter into negotiations. Um, is the United States prepared to sit down and talk with the Iranians if the subject is limited 
to their nuclear program or their potential nuclear weapons program? Or are we still insisting that they commit uh, to opening up negotiations on a host of other activities before we would entertain any discussions? Um, the objective of our entire strategy here is to seek a negotiated outcome with Iran that's comprehensive, that covers the nuclear issue, the ballistic missiles, advanced weaponry, the malign behavior in the region, human rights practices, treatment of US citizens. Um, we are open today to dialogue without preconditions. The president has signaled that consistently. Um, we're ready to do that. But the goal would have to be a comprehensive agreement along the lines I said. So the position still remains no preconditions. You're willing to sit down and, and talk today. That's correct. Um, lastly, let me sneak one last in for Mr. Schring, and I apologize for going backwards and forwards. Um, I wanted to talk about this uh, authority to protect partners. Now, I may disagree with you that there's a broad Article II uh, ability to uh, protect partners without congressional authority, but let's drill down on the existing 2001 authorization. Uh, and you have referenced that the 2001 authorization may give you broad authority to protect partners who are engaged in fights with us against the enemy. I would submit that you're right if they are engaged in fights against a named enemy under the 2001 authorization and that enemy has attacked them. But what about the case in which a group not listed in the 2001 AUMF has attacked a partner who's a partner in the fight against ISIS or the fight against Al-Qaeda, but has been attacked by an entity that is not listed in the 2001 AUMF? Do you have any responsibility to come to Congress to uh, launch an attack against that new entity, or is, or is any attack against a partner of ours in the fight against uh, extremism um, uh, covered, our response to it covered under the 2001 AMF? I, I think you're nodding, so I think you get what I'm asking. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate the question and understand the question. Um, so, Senator, what you've laid out is very, a very fact-specific hypothetical, and I, I just like, to, I prefer not to get into answering very hypothetical questions. I think what we're, what we're, what we've articulated in the testimony today is, is the first scenario that, that you mentioned in that when U.S. forces are deployed alongside partners and allies, we have a right to defend our forces and uh, those, those partner allied forces uh, as they together are pursuing missions pursuant to either the 2001 or 2002 AUMF. So th that was the core proposition that we're... Right, but you're prepared to argue affirmatively in that hypothetical, but you're not prepared to say you do not have the authority uh, in the case that they are attacked by a entity not named uh, by the administration as a terrorist group affiliated with al-Qaeda. Well, uh, in some ways, the, the, so the answer that I provided is not, not necessarily hypothetical because we, I can cite a couple examples where we've actually exercised authority uh, to protect um, to, to protect our, our own forces as they're engaging in, in, uh, in certain operations pursuant to the 2001 or 2002 uh, AUMF and come under attack by another group. For example, in 2011, U.S. forces were engaged in an operation in, um, in Iraq and came under threat from uh, some Iranian-backed uh, militia groups. And under the proposition that I laid out, uh, our forces were able to to respond appropriately to, to that threat. Okay, I've gone over my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Senator Young. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for agreeing to hold this hearing uh, for my request, and, and I know the desires of other members uh, of the committee. Welcome, Mr. Hale and Mr. String. In 1990, I graduated from high school, and within weeks of graduating from high school, I enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And within months of enlisting in the U.S. Navy, uh, our nation was uh, marching towards war, and uh, our Congress authorized, US, uh, authorized the use of military force against Iraq. That was the first Gulf War. Um, and there are a number of members of Congress that um, uh, are, are, are now serving um, uh, in the House of Representatives who, who were born after that period of time. That, that law is still, still on the books, so I think it's right and appropriate that Congress um, uh, has a, a public hearing about this matter. Uh, you know, what is Congress's role in determining when we authorize the use of military force or, more pointedly, when we declare war? The parameters of this conversation uh, here today are, are far more important than uh, the here and now uh, situation as, as it relates to uh, Iran. I think they, they speak to the very heart and soul of this institution. I can think of no more fundamental responsibility than authorizing force and sending our men and women uh, into harm's way. So um, this is going to define the future of this institution for years to come. The chairman started off uh, the hearing indicating that uh, this is a really tough issue. In fact, 535 views, is he, different views uh, up here on the Hill, and then a number of different views in the executive branch. It's that latter part that I think often provides real challenges. And, and, and I think to the extent there are um, multiple views in the executive branch, that creates a problem, because if there's multiple views, there really is, is not one singular view, and there's no rule with respect to when we go to uh, war or do not go to war. So hopefully we'll get um, clear answers um, uh, to a couple of questions I have. Iran, uh, they've been engaging in various escalatory activities, um, and um, if they continue with these activities, civilian oil tanker uh, attacks, attacks against uh, energy infrastructure, um, perhaps they, they, they may attack uh, U.S. military forces that are located in the region directly. An isolated strike uh, like we did in uh, Syria in 2017 and 2018, uh, not done, uh, under uh, an authorization of the use of military force, but instead under the Article II prerogatives of, of the president. Um, a surgical strike seems like it, it, it may not be possible, given Iran's capabilities and uh, their proximity to U.S. assets and our partners and allies in the region and their hardened hard, hard network of, of terrorist uh, proxies. So recognizing that deterrence matters, but also that the role of Congress is fundamental here as we contemplate military force, how you gentlemen and others advise the Secretary and the President on these matters uh, is, is quite important. So how do you balance, your respon uh, balance responsibly uh, responsibility to maintain international order and dissuade a threat against our interests on one hand, versus the awareness that a surgical retaliatory strike may not be possible in Iran. Yeah, Mr. String. Thank you for the, for the question, Senator. And I, as I was discussing with Senator Cardin earlier, I completely agree with the proposition that uh, the executive branch, when the executive branch and Congress are in alignment on a particular issue that makes the United States uh, all, the, all the stronger. So complete alignment on that. Um, you've touched upon an important aspect of the analysis that would go into any 
decision to use force under the Constitution, under Article Two of the Constitution, the Commander-in-Chief and the Chief Executive power. So what executive branch attorneys would look at is whether a particular action would lead to a war in the constitutional sense. That's an important limit under uh, the, uh, the constitutional authority under Article Two. And so how we would interpret that, we would look at particular facts and uh, circumstances that would adhere uh, as a result of a particular strike in, in, your, in your example. We would look at things like the nature and the scope and the duration. Yes, of those are factors. Yes. Uh, and, and I've heard you mention them. Uh, uh, from when uh, previous questions were asked. So let me interject with a, a tactical question. We have uh, our naval assets in the region in part because uh, we're sending a lot of jets to Saudi Arabia. We ought to be encouraging them to, to purchase vessels so they can uh, do more of their own security. But nonetheless, um, we are there <laughs> appropriately, I, I think, for deterrence uh, as, as, as well as to make sure that region maintains a measure of, of stability. Um, is it the administration's view that an attack on a U.S. Navy ship or plane um, is uh, uh, that, it, that our assets are, are under some obligation to respond uh, with force, rather, if, if a civilian vessel is attacked, uh, say uh, an American civilian vessel is attacked by Iranian forces while transiting those waters where we have a military presence? So in terms of an attack on a U.S. naval vessel, um, a, a lot of different factors come into play, uh, including some more tactical rules of engagement, which I think the Department of Defense is probably better positioned to What to about answer. a civilian vessel? Um, I don't want to get into any legal conclusion that would flow from an attack on a civilian vessel. That would be obviously very concerning for a number of policy reasons. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to provide a legal conclusion as to what would be authorized as a response. It would be an extremely concerning situation, as it has been. What, what authorities might allow the United States to respond militarily to an attack on a, a civilian vessel? Uh, well, as we were discussing earlier, uh, without getting into any factual, uh, factual situation, the, the commander-in-chief power under Article Two is is flexible depending on what particular facts were presented by by an attack. Uh, so I, I can't provide a legal conclusion as to what what uh, what authorities may be used, but we're confident that the president has the right authorities to keep the nation safe. Okay, let me let me pivot briefly to. Uh, another authorization, because we've had a number of them, and, and many of them have been, been on the books for years and years and years. So um, the 2002 AUMF, um, is Iraq an ally of the United States of America? As I've heard from other members of Department of Defense and Department of State, um, both in private settings and in public settings, are they an ally of the United States of America? Is the Iraqi government an ally of the United States of America? I would characterize the relationship as one of partnership. Um, we work well with the Iraqi leadership, uh, with President Saleh. With you wouldn't tell their, their top leadership they're allies of ours? Well, uh, perhaps it's more of a, a legal terminology as to whether we have a formal uh, treaty alliance with them. I don't believe we do, but this is a very strong partnership, and we're very committed to uh, helping the Iraqi government achieve its goals, our goals of stabilizing their country and securing control over all of their territory and countering the malign influence of Iran. 
Well, I think the current government um, is, is indeed a, a, a strong partner, and um, we need to do what we can to defend them uh, against uh, whether it's encroachment from Iran or, or some internal extremists. Um, I don't think we need to be prepared to wage war against them. And yet we have this 2002 AUMF on the books. So uh, does the administration oppose the repeal of the 2002 AUMF? Thank you, Senator. Uh, we believe that we have the authorities, uh, important authorities under the 2002 AUMF that we still utilize for, it, for a couple different uh, types of operations. First, we continue to rely on the 2002 AUMF for our operations, certain operations both in Iraq and in Syria. So operationally, it is still relevant to what the Department of Defense is pursuing. Uh, secondly, we also rely on the 2002 AUMF in um, litigation to de defend some of our detention activities. So uh, it is something that we continue to cite in, in court filings and in, the, in, in, uh, in various litigation. So it's under great dispute. It's under great dispute whether or not uh, the you say it's under you know court filings and there's and there's litigation. So the parameters of that agreement and and uh, what it allows, the authority it allows the executive branch is uh, there's a dispute about that. Senator, I would uh, characterize it a little differently in terms of the lit in terms of the litigation. Uh, yes. It is it, we've asserted in in litigation that certain of our detention activities rely on both uh, the 2001. 2002 AUMFs, as well as Article Two of the Constitution. So it's something we rely upon. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily in informal dispute, but it is uh, something that we actively assert. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. We're here discussing whether President Trump can strike Iran because President Trump's Iran policy is a disaster. And the President does not have clear authority to attack Iran under current AUMFs. And what's worse, some in the administration are using the chaos to try to provoke a fight. Ambassador Hale, yes and no, isn't Iran enriching more nuclear material to higher enrichment levels now than it was before President Trump unilaterally withdrew from the Iran nuclear agreement? Yes, I believe they are. So pulling out of the nuclear deal has resulted in Iran increasing its nuclear material production. Yes or no, was this disenrichment activity prohibited under the nuclear deal that President Trump has pulled our nation out of? The, I believe the plan's intent was to prohibit that level of enrichment. Right. And is there any evidence that it was not being enriched, that it, that it was being enriched? There is none. The agreement was being abided by. So it's hard to see how the Trump administration can say it wants Iran to cease its nuclear activities, but then forfeited these strict limits by leaving the deal. So yes and no. Um, we do not currently have a foreign minister to foreign minister level diplomatic channel in Iran. Yes or no? Uh, it's true that the foreign ministers are not speaking, yes. So? that must make pursuing the diplomacy Trump claims to seek very difficult. Uh, I'll also remind my colleagues that we did previously have such a channel, as well as robust working level diplomatic contacts as well in the previous administration. 
So yes and no, when we were talking with Iran and we were in the nuclear deal, Iran did not attack or commandeer ships or shoot down U.S. drones. Yes or no? It was not conducting those kinds of attacks on our interests, but it was undermining our interests through the use of violence in other ways. But throughout it was the not commandeering ships or shooting down U.S. drones. The, the causes belli that the president is now pointing at, that his, the people in his administration are talking about. And yes or no, is Iran doing these things now, commandeering ships and shooting down U.S. drones? It has, yes. Yeah. Yes and no. Since leaving the nuclear deal, we have redeployed troops to Saudi Arabia for the first time in over a decade, sent an additional aircraft carrier strike group, and deployed B-52 bombers and a Patriot missile defense battery while drastically decreasing our regional diplomatic presence, particularly in Iraq. Yes or no? I can certainly confirm that we are doing those things, but I'd like an opportunity to provide a little more context to what's happening. I only happening. get five minutes. I apologize to you. All those things are true. So to me, President Trump's Iran policies are dangerously increasing tensions with Iran and letting them restart their nuclear program right now with no enforceable limits on the Iranians. So this puts us on a road to yet another Middle Eastern conflict. So that brings us to what possible legal justifications the Trump administration might feel it has to strike Iran. Ambassador Hale, during congressional testimony in April, Secretary Pompeo said that, quote, there is no doubt there is a connection between the Islamic Republic of Iran and al-Qaeda, period, full stop. What evidence is there to support the claim that there is a link between uh, Iran and al-Qaeda? Um, there have been uh, the provision of safe haven by Iran to elements of al-Qaeda. So uh, is, uh, is there plotting going on between these uh, two groups towards um, our American interest? Do you have evidence of that? I think we would have to respond in a classified setting to that question, Senator. Well, will you commit to briefing our committee on exactly what Secretary Pompeo means in a closed setting? Certainly commit to providing you with that information. Yeah, we would be all ears to hear that connection because despite these serious claims, there has been no evidence, classified or otherwise, that's been offered to me that provides any evidence of this link between al-Qaeda and the Iranian government. And Mr. String, President Trump reportedly approved a strike against Iran before calling it off. Under what specific authority did he order this strike? Thank you. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, so he, he did not, just to be clear, he did not order the strike. The, the strike he, never He ordered never the strike occurred. before he withdrew the order for the strike. Under what authority did he order the strike before he withdrew it? What was that authority? Yeah, thank you, Senator. So the, your question gets at some of the most sensitive types of decision-making. What was the, the authority the, that was used mm -hmm. to order a strike against Iran? Yeah, Senators, again, so your, your question gets to some of the most sensitive decision-making. Right, uh, so what was the authority the, that was used? I can't get into uh, specific deliberative issues uh, surrounding that set of events. Well, that's why you're here to testify. You're here to tell us what was the authority because we want to know, was it the Iran, was it the Iraq AUMF, was it the uh, Afghanistan AUMF, or was it just some inherent authority that the President believes he has to just make a unilateral strike against another country that could cause a uh, 
an apocalyptic event potentially in the Middle East? What was the authority? Yeah. Senator, I respect the question. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't get into the specifics of particular deliberations that occur at that time. Okay, well, here's my conclusion then for you. The administration has no authority to strike Iran. Uh, the administration must consult and receive authorization if it wants to do so, and the administration does not have the right to entangle U.S. and yet another Middle East conflict without a buy-in from Congress, the people's representative. We're the ones who represent these young men and women who will be sent into that conflict, and without clear uh, a proof that the president has authority that is presented to Congress, it would be a big mistake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator uh, Markey. I, uh, I actually can provide a little context for you on that since I was in the room when that decision was made. And uh, without going into anything classified or anything else, I can tell you that uh, after there was an attack on uh, U.S. assets, uh, there was a in-depth discussion about what defensive measures were necessary for our assets in the region, which, in my judgment, would have been under Article 2. Now, there weren't lawyers arguing whether it was one AUMF or another AUMF or Article 2, but rather the practical situation. And it, and it is the <clears throat> practical situations that, that we're discussing here that make this thing so dicey. Uh, we all have general ideas and general agreement as to what should happen, uh, but when the pragmatics uh, are right there, it, it, becomes, uh, uh, it becomes more difficult. And uh, the decision was made, in, in my judgment, uh, under Article 2, uh, and I guess uh, you could argue that uh, that wasn't uh, appropriate, but uh, there, there was no advice being given that, it, that Article 2 didn't apply when we were talking about uh, defending U.S. persons and U.S. assets uh, in the region, so it, it it it's a practical as well as a uh, as a, a legal problem. So with that, we will turn to Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, if, uh, if my colleague would yield for just a sure. moment. And procedure-wise, since this next vote is expiring now, is it the chair's intention to to continue through? In which case, I'd like to go vote, come back, because I still have another round of questions when yeah. everybody else is. Um, why, why don't you do that, uh, okay. Senator? We'll just we'll keep going if that's okay with you. Yeah, Senator Brasso. Uh, th thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate uh, the work you do. Thank you for being with us today. You know, since the collapse of the self-proclaimed ISIS caliphate in Syria. Uh, I've seen reports of approximately 1,000 ISIS fighters, mostly Iraqis, who crossed over the border to go back home to Iraq th this year. Uh, both the Obama and the Trump administration have used the 2001 AUMF as justification for engaging ISIS in both Iraq as well as in Syria. Uh, do you believe, the, does the administration still view the AUMF, the 2001 AUMF, as an authorization to militarily engage with ISIS? Yes, Senator. And what are your views of the risks associated if we reopened the 2001 AUMF, and what are some of the operational consequences in this effort? Thank you, Senator. Uh, good question. So right now we, we rely on the 2001 AUMF not only for operations in Syria and Iraq, as you mentioned, but also in five other uh, countries, which we've disclosed in multiple reports no. to, to Congress. Uh, so it would unsettle the legal foundation for several of these types of military operations in various theaters. We also rely on the 2001 AUMF for many of our detention operations, so it would also potentially unsettle the foundation for 
detention operations. Uh, Senator, Mr. I'm, Chairman. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to interrupt for a minute. We're being told by the floor that they're going to close the vote, and it's important that we get on a vote. So again, with my apologies to, uh, to the witnesses and to everyone else, we're going to have to take a break again. So uh, we will break as, <laughs> as briefly as we can with the, uh, uh, so with that, the. Yes, Mr. Chairman, we have both voted. Perhaps you'd like to have Mr. Kane chair while you vote. <laughs> Won't do anything weird. <laughs> the record will reflect that he won't do anything weird, and with that, Senator Kane, have at it. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses for this important testimony. So just um, jumping in, um, I am correct, am I not, that neither the 2001 nor 2002 authorizations even mention the word Iran, correct? That's correct, Senator. Okay. Um, and you earlier testified in response, I believe, to a question from Senator Udall. He read a, a portion of the 9-11 Commission report where the Commission found that Iran did not have any connection to the attacks of 9-11, is that correct? That's correct. The administration has not, to, to date, and we talked about that phrase a little bit earlier, but the administration has not interpreted either the 2001 or 2002 authorization as an authorization for military action against Iran, correct? That's, that's correct, sir, with the, the one caveat about self-defense that I mentioned in my opening statement. And self-defense is an Article II issue. We would all agree on that. Uh, U.S. forces could engage in self-defensive activities both under the Constitution, or pursuant to an Article II authority, or pursuant to an AUMF authority. If, if one was granted. So if there's an AUMF that doesn't say anything about Iran, that, you can't use that to justify self-defense. You could use Article II, correct? You're, you're correct, Senator. Just, just to explain the, the nuance there, um, when U.S. forces are currently uh, pursuing missions under Article uh, so under uh, the 2002 or 2001 AUMF, and in the pursuit of those missions, the current, uh, the current missions, if they come under attack, I, they have a right to defend themselves. Um, Senator Cardin indicated that he was here during the votes in both 2001 and 2002, and it was not his intention in voting on both of those authorizations that, or his understanding that those were to be authorizations for military action against Iran. You, you may not have been here then, but you wouldn't challenge his statement about what congressional intent was at the time, would you? I would certainly take him at his word, Senator. So uh, to close out on this one, and then I want to go to a, another line of topic, would, it would be fair to say no mention of Iran. The administration hasn't determined 01 or 02 to authorize military action against Iran, and the 9-11 Commission found that Iran was not connected to the 9-11 attack, it would be fair to say that neither the 2001 nor 2002 authorizations are a specific statutory authorization for military action against Iran. Is that fair to say? Senator, I think that's broadly consistent with, with the assertions that we've, we've made today. There's been no, no determination to date that either AUMF applies to authorize force against Iran. Thank you for that. I want to I go to uh, a line of questions that I think Senator Young was asking you. Uh, Undersecretary Hale, and it's good to see you again. Um, with respect to Iraq, I think you were asked if Iraq was an ally, and you described them, you know, maybe not in the formal alliance sense, but they're certainly a partner. We are in Iraq right now uh, conducting a counter-ISIS 
operation at their invitation. They've asked us to come into Iraq to help them with that. We're, we're doing all kinds of things to promote the stability of Iraq. We had a hearing last week with State Department witnesses talking about the activities that we're engaged in together with Iraq. And so is it fair to say that we would view them now as a, as a partner and an, and an important partner? I think that's exactly right, Senator. So we have two authorizations, a 1991 authorization, 2002 authorization, that authorize us to use military action against the government of Iraq. It's not uh, uh, authorizations to promote good things in Iraq or protect Iraq. Both of these authorizations, 91 and 02, are structured as military action against Iraq. In response to an earlier question, Mr. String, I think you said that you did not know of any current operation or legal authority or even an incarceration of somebody at Guantanamo or something that would be affected if the 91 and 02 authorizations were repealed. Do, do I understand that that was your earlier testimony? With a slight nuance, Senator, uh, so I, what I stated is I, I could not point to any particular operation that was exclusively uh, justified under the 2002 uh, uh, AUMF. Can you, uh, however, to, can you, uh, operation, can you point to any incarceration of any individual that is based on the 2002 authorization and that wouldn't be covered by the 2001 authorization? Uh, Senator, there has been some, some recent litigation uh, regarding some novel detainee issues in which we as the executive branch have asserted as an authority three different legal bases. Um, Article two of the Constitution, the 2001 AUMF, as well as the 2002 AUMF. So it is, I can point to particular cases and particular detention situations where we think we need that extra authority. Are you, are you aware of any situation where you are asserting only the 2002 authorization as basis for detention without also citing Article two or 2001? At present, I am not aware of that. And the last question I'll ask is this. What does it say to a partner that we're working with to have an open-ended legal authorization to take military action against their nation. Is that the way we ought to treat a partner? That, that may be more of a, a po policy question in terms of how a partner's reacting, but I, I will- Well, it's a little bit of a diplomatic question since we have a great diplomat here. Um, you have served all over the region. Um, you know, military action is one of the most serious things we do. Taking the position that we're authorizing military action against your government that's a serious thing. Um, we are not taking military action now against the Iraqi government. There is no conceivable circumstance where we hope we would need to. Um, it seems to me to be odd that we're talking about all the things we're doing together with Iraq and describing them as a partner, where we have two authorizations that are still on the book saying that we are allowed to take military action against them. Do you, do you see why this troubles me? Senator, I certainly follow the logic uh, that you're pursuing. I would say, though, as a practical matter, this is not an impediment or an issue between us and the Iraqi government. This is not a focus of concern, to my knowledge, on their part. Uh, we're focused together on the things that you heard about in the other hearing, about how we can be good partners together and we can support them in the incredible effort to stabilize that country against both ISIS and the Iranians. So. And, and I would argue, and I may follow up with this for the record, nor is it a practical value add for us uh, when we're not taking military action against Iraq and they're now a partner rather than an, uh, uh, an adversary and we can cite no specific instance of a circumstance where we need the 2002 authorization to take action. With that, I will yield to my colleague from Oregon. 
Thank you, Mr. String. Did Iran plan or authorize the 9-11 attack? Did Iran plan or authorize? Uh, not that I'm aware of, Senator. No. Did they commit or aid that attack? Not that I'm aware of, Senator. Did they harbor the folks who committed that attack? Not that I'm aware of at, at the time, but I think we'd want to get a, a more you. complete answer. Well, I think you'd, if you use your lawyerly mind to look at it, it was in past tense. It was those who harbored those not who, before the attack. So we have five standards in the 2001 AUMF, five standards. You've just said none of them are met, and yet you persist in arguing an interpretation of an AUMF that Congress didn't intend and is not there in, in the language. Now, we have a system in which some issues can be adjudicated by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court defers on these issues. So the only way that the Congress has any faith in what it's passing is if there's integrity interpretation by the executive branch. You have just told me that the five standards lay out are not met, and yet, you argue for an expanded interpretation that is not in the language. How can Congress play the role it's constitutionally assigned if the administration expands the meaning beyond what is in the actual AUMF? Senator, thank you. It's a good question. Uh, so w we've largely continued the interpretations that were set forth in the previous administration. No, I do understand that, and I would have equal criticism of the prior administration in that regard. And, and but you're there now. You have the responsibility now to honor the integrity of what Congress wrote and passed at the time in 2001. Do you not feel some commitment to honor the integrity of that language? Yes, Senator, we feel a, a, a great commitment to- And how can you continue to argue that 2001 can apply to Iran when you just told me that the five standards in it have not been met? Senator, we, we haven't argued that. Actually, we've, we've argued the opposite, that to date there has, been no open, that there's been no determination to date that either the 2001 or the 2002 AUMF would authorize force against If you were making a determination today, could you see any basis since you've just said the five standards in there are not met? How could that change? You're keeping the door open to that possibility by not, by not giving us, sharing your opinion. Maybe you'd like to share your opinion. Yes, Senator. So as, as lawyers in the executive branch, we we opine on facts before us pr at present. Uh, we can't predict future events, so all I can do is talk about what we've done today. Okay, let's turn to Article Two powers. Uh, you have said that Article Two empowers the Commander-in-Chief to act on regional stability. Isn't that a rather large loophole to place into the Constitution? You know, Washington laid out as the most honored and respected military commander in our history how important this was that the executive not have the power to put people into positions of war except direct defense of an attack. So Washington argued that Jefferson, before he was president, argued for this vision. When, when he was president, he said, I will have to go to Congress. He honored that vision as well. Now you're telling me that Article Two, that is, in translation, the power is given to the chief executive, the president of the United States, allows going to war for some analysis of regional stability without a direct attack on the United States? So Article Two of the Constitution does not provide the president with the ability to take the nation to war in a constitutional sense. That's an important limit that has been recognized in Department of Justice opinions across administrations. There are a series of factors which previous 
opinions by the Department of Justice, again, across administrations have looked at. One of those has been uh, regional stability issues, attacks. Another one is an attack. So again, I'm trying to clarify for this committee and for the public, you're saying that Article 2, the war powers of a president as commander-in-chief, allow him to go to war without congressional authorization based on some analysis of regional stability. Uh, th that's, not, that's not quite correct, Senator. So what I said is the, the, the limit on the constitutional power under Article 2 does not authorize a president to take the nation to war in a constitutional sense. In a constitutional sense, that is a power reserved to Congress. What does that mean in a constitutional sense? Is it un so you can go to war in an unconstitutional sense? Article 2 of the Constitution allows the president to take certain types of military action to defend important U.S. national interests, and that's uh, an interpretation that the previous administration used in at least two circumstances, the administration before that, et cetera. So how is, how is Article 1 the commitment that in our nation, decisions to use military force are vested, the war powers are vested in Congress. How is that relevant if you argue that the president can act without that authorization based on something as vague as regional stability? So, Senator, we have great respect for the constitutional prerogatives of, of Congress and the right to uh, declare war under, under Article I of the Constitution. Article II of the Constitution has been long recognized by, again, administrations of both parties to authorize the president to take limited types of action. Okay, let's explore the limited. Are you saying that responding to regional stability as an argument is only an argument for very limited military action? It's always a facts and circumstances analysis, and it's, it's an analysis that's conducted very carefully in the executive You're not branch. willing to constrain it to limited or proportional response in your interpretation? That's an important limit in general under, under international law. It has to be necessary and proportionate. That's a, that's a limitation as well. Under international law, but we're talking the Constitution right now and the, the power that the president sees within that framework. Yes, and, and these limits that I've just described are also adopted as part of U.S. US since, since you've expounded here that none of the five standards in the 2001 AUMF are, are met, why wouldn't you support eliminating that AUMF? Senator, our position has been that the executive branch has, the, has sufficient authorities to take actions to defend the United States. We, of course, respect the... If you have sufficient powers otherwise, why would you not support eliminating the 2001 AUMF? Uh, Senator, because we continue to rely upon the 2001 But AUMF. you've said the standards are not met. The five standards are not met. So why do you want to hold on to this? Because we utilize this AUMF for operations in seven different theaters. Those theaters don't meet the test either, the five tests that are in it. And you previously cited the 2001 AUMF with the phrase associated forces. Can you point to me that, that phrase in the 2001 AUMF? Uh, Senator, this is, this is a longstanding interpretation that the executive branch has. So it is applied. not in the AUMF? 
It's a longstanding interpretation. Again, how do we have integrity for congressional action if you rely on your own expanded interpretation, whether or not it was done by a previous administration? Well, I think I can provide some assurance in that respect, Senator, in that there's a very careful process that we've uh, continued from the previous administration when we would be reviewing any potential additions to the list of entities that could fall under the 2001 AUMF. This is my last question, uh, Mr. Chairman. You argued that the only replacement AUMF you would support would be one that had no repeal before replacement, no geographic limit, and no sunset. Unlimited in space, unlimited in time, and according to the set of interpretations you've shared today, unlimited in power. And how is that not a complete abrogation of the constitutional vision of the war-making authority of Congress? Senator, again, we would respect the prerogatives of this, of this body and the Congress to determine what those parameters would be. We're simply offering um, our best advice to, to Congress about what some guideposts should be as, as this body may consider. You're asking for no termination, no geographic bounder, boundary. You're not putting forward any provisions for the limited power. I would say that sounds like a complete abrogation of the Article I war-making power completely inconsistent with this Constitution. And in your responsibility to have integrity to what Congress passes, I'm very disappointed to hear uh, your failure to honor that integrity. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, let me first thank you for extending courtesies on both sides of the aisle in the time limitation on an issue that is of uh, great importance to members, so I appreciate that. Uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, Secretary Hale, uh, in April of this year, Secretary Pompeo testified before this committee and said, quote, there is no doubt there is a connection between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Al-Qaeda, period, full stop. Is that uh, uh, the, uh, the administration's position that Iran and Al-Qaeda are connected? I really can't improve on what Secretary Pompeo said um, in an earlier. Don't try. So is that is that uh, is that the is that the uh, position of the administration that uh, Iran, Iran and Al Qaeda are connected? He stated that, and that that is the position. Right. So Secretary to what extent? State. To what extent? Give me some depth then. To what the, extent are they connected? The issue I'm aware of is the continued provision of safe haven to Al Qaeda by the Iranian regime. Um, that, that, is, that is what I'm aware of. Mm. So, uh, Mr. S Mr. String, based upon that alone, has the department, has you as a legal advisor, determined whether this connection would be sufficient to use force under the 2001 AUMF? Senator, as I think the secretary himself made clear, he was not making a, a legal conclusion as to those links. And as we've discussed earlier, the administration has not interpreted either 2001 or 2002 AUMF as authorizing force against Iran. So you haven't come to any conclusion as to whether that al-Qaeda connection uh, invokes authorities under the 2001 AUMF? We have not made any determination to date on that question. Have you been considering that question? Uh, Senator, we are, we are constantly vigilant on, on these issues uh, in responding and assessing threats. Uh, I just have to return to my previous statement that to date we haven't, we haven't made that determination, but we continue to be vigilant. Did the 2001 AUMF provide authorization uh, to respond to the IRGC's takeover of a British ship? Uh, Senator, I prefer not to get into hypothetical no, that's not uh, a hypothetical. That's, that's a reality. 
the, the Iranians took over a British ship, does the AUMF give them, give you the authorization to respond to it? Uh, again, we have not interpreted either the 2001 or 2002 AUMF to uh, authorize the use of force against Iran. About, uh, what about a response to Iran exceeding JCPOA enrichment limits? Senator, I'd have, I'd have the same answer with respect to that. We, the 2001 or 2002 AUMF has not, have not been interpreted to date to authorize force in the respect that, that you laid out. could not be interpreted as such. Again, I go back to the statement that I've been repeating that we haven't interpreted it to date based on the facts before us. Well, since I very rarely get the legal counselor before this committee of the State Department, let me turn to another subject that maybe you can be more elucidating about. Uh, you're familiar with the recently concluded U.S.-Mexico joint declaration, are you not? Yes, I am, Senator, of June 7th. Um, good. Uh, as an expert on bilateral and multilateral agreements, treaties, and other types of international arrangements, you know the difference between a binding and a non-binding instrument, correct? That's correct, Senator. So let me ask you a simple question based on your legal expertise. Just give me a yes or no answer. Is the U.S.-Mexico joint declaration binding for purposes of international law? Uh, Senator, that is an important uh, authoritative agreement that the governments of the United States and Mexico uh, entered into, and uh, we are in the midst of implementing various I elements I asked you if it agreement. was an authoritative agreement. I asked you if it was binding for purposes of international law. Senator, I have to give the same answer. We view it as an important authoritative agreement. Well, that's, that's an that non-answer. I, you know, I, you know, I don't practice these days, but I did at one time, and that's a non-answer. It's a non-answer to my specific question. It's it's so uh, beyond my pale to understand why the uh, why the department is so reluctant to ask, answer a simple, a simple question. You signed personally the supplementary agreement. Is that correct? That's correct, Senator. In that agreement, I see phrases like, quote, the U.S. and Mexico will begin discussions to establish definitive terms for a binding bilateral agreement. That sure doesn't sound binding to me. So can you tell me, why has the department been so reluctant to answer this basic question? Uh, Senator, I believe we've provided answers to questions that your staff have raised with respect to, to the agreement. We continue to be engaged in important discussions with the Mexican government and other governments in the region about uh, burden-sharing issues. Your, your answers have been totally non-responsive. And it is the non-responsiveness of these answers that has led me to use the limited tools that the minority has, which I've been in consultation with the chairman about, uh, in terms of just getting a simple answer. Is this a binding international agreement, yes or no? It either is or it isn't. If it is, fine, then we know what goes forth from it. If it, though we don't know what the agreement is, which is another problem, we don't know what the agreement is. Does the department intend to submit any part of this agreement to the Senate for advice and consent? Senator, the parameters of, of an agreement uh, are still subject to discussion both within the executive branch and with our partners, but so you, I don't have an you, answer on that. You have an agreement, so if you have an agreement, then you'd know whether or not you'd be submitting it for advice and consent or not. Does the, does the department view this as an executive agreement? The agreement that we're discussing with regional partners currently? The, the U.S.-Mexico declaration. The U.S.-Mexico declaration will not be submitted as a, a treaty to, to the Senate for It will not be submitted as a treaty. Do you view it as an executive agreement? Uh, again, Senator, we 
we view this as an important authoritative agreement that's been agreed Will to. Will you be reporting it under the CASE Act? Senator, we're still, we're still looking at all those questions internally in the executive branch. Well, so here's a problem. You're before the oversight committee of your department. You can't give me a straightforward yes or no, is this a binding international agreement? We can't get a copy of the agreement. It's the most coveted, you know, uh, uh, secret agreement that should be very clear. Uh, we cannot get a sense of whether or not you consider this an executive agreement, whether you're answered under the case act. Why, 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 why can't you just, why can't you give us simple answers to those questions? Uh, Senator, uh, I'm trying to be as forthright as I can. We're still in discussions about the, the, uh, the parameters of the ag agreements that you've, you've referenced. So, so several it, elements so, of this. So are then still you don't have an agreement. If you're talking about the either you know the agreement, the four square elements of what the agreement is, or you do not. If you do not, you don't have a final agreement then. Senator, we, we do have the June 7th declaration that you mentioned. That is obviously complete because it's been, it's been posted publicly. Uh, so I, I can talk about that, and I can talk about the agreement that you also mentioned about the commitment, important commitments to pursue additional discussions. That's what I can talk about at this stage. Secretary Hale, is there any reason you cannot provide the committee with a copy of this agreement? I'll have to come back to you, sir, on that. I don't, I've not been as informed as, as Merrick has been on the detailed legal aspects of this agreement. So let me get back to you and get well, back to your not, staff. It's not even the legal yeah. aspects of the agreement. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's for the legal advisor. Just in general, you're the Undersecretary for Political Affairs. Why can we not get this committee, the Committee of Oversight, not get a simple, hard copy of the agreement? Let me take that back to the department and get back to you, sir. Mr. Chairman, this is the challenge that those of us who are interested in what this agreement is and believe we have the right to see the agreement and therefore decide what is the appropriate policy, maybe in support of what the president did, maybe in criticism of it, maybe in part support, maybe in part criticism. But you can't, you can't, you can't have this committee and its members seek to make judgments without having in basic information. This is basic information. So anyhow, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for indulging me. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, sincere thank you to our uh, witnesses. And for the information, the members of the record will remain open until close of business on Friday. We'd ask the witness to, to respond as promptly as possible uh, to the questions for the record, and they will be made part of the record. With that, this committee is adjourned.